You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. We talk a lot about evangelicalism and its impact in the world on uncommentary and uh, I guess that's a needed thing. And one of the things that we talk to historians about is the impact that evangelicalism has had in the world. And I've taken kind of a particular interest in this uh, in the last several months as I've read some books and uh, even read some about Billy Graham and his impact uh, in the world outside of his preaching in his attempt to influence policy and presidents and things of that nature. And wh- what, are, what are the results of those efforts? And so, as I mentioned in today's uh, podcast, I, I don't think that uh, American evangelicals, for sure, and maybe even evangelicals across the West, uh, really take the time to explore the impact of uh, what our religious thought uh, does in culture. So how does that thought affect more than just preaching the gospel? Because evangelicalism itself is about uh, being in society, it's about having being involved in politics. It's about trying to shape culture, trying to be in a salt and light in society. So, what are some of the end results of those things? Uh, do we examine the fruit outside of uh, how many were in attendance Sunday morning in small group, or how many were in attendance in worship, or how many contacts did we make? So, do we really look at the impact of a Christian American life? outside of what happens to church on Sunday mornings. And when we do look at that, do we understand uh, the impact that's that's had? So today we're going to be talking about foreign policy and um, how evangelicalism has shaped foreign policy in the United States. A lot of it has to do with religious freedom, but some of it doesn't have to do with religious freedom. It's just things that happened that may have been couched in those terms. Uh, in context, what role did the Cold War play? What role did uh, outside of the Cold War play? in policies that were pushed by evangelicals in uh, various presidential administrations in the United States, and what were some of those outcomes, and how does it affect the way that we think about uh, our own uh, walk with Christ or our own impact in culture through policy and politics. I'm glad to have today, uh, Doctor. I'm going to call you Doctor for the intro. Is that okay, Doctor? That's just fine. Yeah, Doctor Lauren Turk, <laughs> who is uh, safely ensconced in her laundry room, it looks like, with a cool pair of gaming headphones on, and she is and she's drinking some kind of off-brand cola there. Um, 
Or was that a Coke? Is that, that is like a, new, this is a Coke Zero, the new flavor. New branding. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it's not so amazing, but you know, I've not seen one, so it's amazing. But she does have like super cool gamer headphones, like she's on Ready Player One or something like that, which is highly unusual for my academic audience. Uh, but Dr. Lauren Turek is the associate professor. I got that right, right? Of history at Trinity University. And you earned your doctorate from the University of Virginia in 2015. And I cannot tell you how old that makes me feel. <laughs> oh. But you have a degree in museum studies, which makes me think like you just have seasons passes to all of the museums. And that's kind of what got you that. That doesn't sound like a legitimate degree thing. Is that is that a real thing? Museum it is studies? a real thing. I'm the director of the museum studies program at Trinity, too. Yeah. Got to train new museum educators and curators and registrars. OK, so do you all watch Night in the, Night in the Museum? I have actually never seen it. <laughs> I can't believe you don't do that for coursework. That is hilarious. <laughs> so uh, what brings you to Uncommentary today, though, is your specialty in uh, U.S. diplomatic history and American religious history. And specifically, you've done some studies on evangelical influence on human rights and U.S. foreign relations. So, Dr. Lauren Turek, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for hanging out. This is cool. Um, now I'm going to get, you may not be a household name. I mean, you might be in, you know, in, uh, Poland, but maybe not in the United States. I want you to tell our listeners, uh, something about yourself that they might find specifically interesting. Sure. Okay. Um, so I guess one of, one of the sort of interesting things about me is I'm in addition to being a historian, um, I am also a musician. I play six musical instruments. What? Yeah. Um, okay. Now I, I, I need to ask because I hear this a lot. Is this like you play regular guitar, bass guitar, 12 string guitar, or is this like you play six like really different instruments? Uh, it's a mix. So I play okay. oboe and English horn. Okay. Which the English horn is like the, the bass oboe, but I also play saxophone and then I play guitar and bass guitar and drums. Dang. So a, a little bit of everything can do can do a one woman band if I needed to, though I'm not a great singer or anything, but I could at least do the music. Um, yeah. Do, do you like play tracks and put them together? Do you do that? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I have a, I mean, and, and old school too, you know, sort of uh, analog, we have a, an eight track recorder. So I play with that sometimes. So do you have a SoundCloud? <laughs> I, I actually don't know. We, um, I have been, I've played in a lot of different groups over the years. So okay. there are some, there are some SoundClouds out there, but I don't, I don't maintain one. I'm, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of time, you know, getting the PhD and then getting established on the tenure yeah, track and yeah. writing this book. Excuses, so, excuses. Yeah. <laughs> so from the mix of instruments, it sounds like you, you play either something related to swing or some type of jazz. What, is that right? So I played um, in concert band in, in college. So I played okay. classical um I actually love Baroque music. It's wonderful for the oboe. It's very. If it's not Baroque, complex. don't fix it. Right. And then I played in jazz band and marching band when I was in school. Mm. And I play in rock bands now. Just sort of. Uh, that's actually how I met my husband. And yeah, we love to make music together. I love to play in garage rock bands. Okay. Can you play the sax part from uh, Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street? Um. I would have to give that a shot. I haven't, I haven't played in a while. So, okay. Yeah. Well, that's like the number, I don't know, the top one. one or two is yeah. surely, I mean, surely it is. It's, it's so good. 
I mean, I learned saxophone for marching band because the oboe is not an outside <laughs> instrument. So I mostly know March, you know, I know John Philip Sousa pieces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So uh, I could, I could needle you about your musical instruments all day long, but um, I really do want to talk about your take on uh, evangelicalism as it relates to foreign policy in the United States, because I think this is kind of one of those overlooked areas. Um, I think when it comes time to vote, people are interested in foreign policy, even if they don't know it by that name, they just want to know who we're going to bomb and who we're not going to bomb. That's kind of the extent of it. And who might be the secretary of state if so-and-so gets elected. But I don't really know that there's a cohesiveness to most American Christians understanding of how, a movement has played some role in uh, American foreign policy. So starting as far back as you wish, your book starts with Carl Henry and Lausanne. So if you want to start there, or if you need to go back farther than that to set a stage, feel free to do so, but uh, help us understand some of the dynamics at play here. Absolutely. Um, So one thing I would say is when, when I was writing the book, one thing I was really interested in was often when we read about the history of evangelicalism, particularly as it pertains to U.S. politics or policy in general, a lot of scholars have written about the rise of the religious right in the 1970s, and they tend to focus on domestic factors. But I'm a foreign policy historian, and I was very interested as I was doing research on some other topics in graduate school to see a lot of evangelical and other conservative Christian writers cropping up responding to foreign policy issues such as U.S. relations with the Soviet Union or China during the 1970s. And I said, hmm, this is not the usual story that I hear. And then I became very interested to see, well, um, how effective are evangelicals in advocating for particular foreign policy views? And, And what actually do they care about? And why do they care about these things? And so that became the the push to explore this topic for a dissertation and that eventually became a book. And what I found as I was doing research is that the overseas missionary work was a really important way in which evangelicals in the United States learned about what was happening abroad, because of course folks were going overseas to spread their particular faith. But while they were there, they were seeing what was happening on the ground. They were seeing the potential impacts of U.S. foreign policy or whatever regional issues were were affecting their areas. And then they would come back or write letters back to their congregations and talk about those things. So if they noticed that Christians were being persecuted, that was something they might write about. Or if there were parts of the world they couldn't go to because they they were closed to evangelism, they would um, try to find ways to to get folks to hear the word despite those restrictions. And I was very intrigued by this. And of course, the history of people going over and doing missionary work, that's not new. We know that there's a long sort of history of Christian missionary work in the United States. There were a lot of efforts around the turn of the 20th century, the sort of late late 19th century, early 20th century to engage in a big kind of world project. Mm -hmm. There's a big meeting at Edinburgh, of course. But... For me as a foreign policy historian, the thing I'm interested in is when does the United States have a a real ability to implement the kind of changes uh, to its policy that would affect other countries? And so in thinking about the United States as a foreign policy power, well, it's pretty weak in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. It's just starting to kind of play on the big stage with some of the big empires. It's not really a big player, though, in 1910. 
it will become a bigger player later. And so the, the, the thing that I'm interested in is by the end of World War II, the United States is a superpower, like without mm-hmm. question a superpower. It has the ability to send its military might, its preponderant military power all over the globe. And in addition to that, it's considerable economic power because it's come out of the war in this um, um, considerably better position than many other countries had mm-hmm. had after World War II. So the United States has this economic power to make change that way. It has diplomatic power and it has military power. So, okay, now that it has this power, what does that mean about what evangelicals are up to as they go overseas? Because whereas in earlier periods, they might've been doing missionary work, they might've been advocating for religious freedom in places. The United States didn't have as much uh, capacity or capability to actually affect change in a lot of places. Well, now it does. By the Mm -hmm. 1970s, especially, it does. And so what I found in my research or what I was interested in, in trying to understand is, okay, the United States is a superpower. It's locked in what seems to be an enduring struggle against its Um, opponent, the Soviet Union. There are religious dynamics to that conflict, that Cold War conflict. What does this mean for missionary work? What does this mean for ideas about spreading U.S. values globally? How does religion play into that? And how do evangelicals mobilize themselves to fight for their particular values in this context? And so what the book does is it looks at that. It says, okay, what do evangelicals want? They want to evangelize as many people or all of the people mm-hmm. yeah, throughout all the of, entire world. Yeah, all of the people. That's true. All the yep. People. yep. Yep. <laughs> so, okay, that's the goal. So, in the 1970s, evangelical organizations like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, they start to move toward that goal. And of course, the interesting thing about evangelicals, especially for someone like me who's not evangelical, who, who um, was raised uh, Catholic and is not religious, you know, of course, the Catholic Church has this hierarchy, it is very mm-hmm. coordinated. Well, boy, evangelical churches are not. There's all sorts of different denominations. They right. are hierarchically organized. There are non-denominational organizations. How do you get all of these different groups together to do anything? Well, Graham calls this big conference in Lausanne um, in 1974, and they put together, they present a lot of papers, and they present these sort of plans for how they can try to combine forces to achieve this goal, knowing that it's a really diffuse Mm-hmm. Group of, of organizations and people. And they bring people from all over the world. This isn't just evangelicals from North America and Europe. It's the idea is that they're going to bring evangelicals from African countries and from Latin America. It's so like 150 countries or something represented, right? Absolutely. And so there's just this remarkable group of people. And of course, there are all these debates that break out because mm-hmm. evangelicals in parts of Africa and Latin America are saying, hey, how exactly do you think you're going to evangelize when we have people in our countries and our in our regions who are struggling with poverty, who are struggling just to get by? We need to focus on caring for them. We need to focus on social justice. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals in a lot of the um, European and U.S. contexts are saying, well, listen, we got to, we got to make sure that they're saved first. We have mm-hmm. to save souls. That's the first priority. And so there's this disjuncture there. And they don't resolve that question. (laughs) But from Lausanne, what we see is a lot more coordinated action on the part of global evangelicals to spread the word. And in the United States, as American evangelicals start to be more and more engaged in that effort, we see them sort of latching on to technological means to do that. So, for example, uh, broadcasting by radio or satellite to reach into parts of the Soviet bloc where mm-hmm. they're not allowed to evangelize, but also efforts to evangelize in remote parts of 
um, Africa and elsewhere. I can remember as a, um, and when I say as a kid, I probably was less than 10 years old that, um, the idea of smuggling Bibles into Russia was a big thing. And somebody came to our church and I don't, I have no idea who this organization was, but the way that they did things was they brought copies, uh, parts of copies of the Bible in Russian, if my memory is correct, and would distribute them to churches in America with envelopes and addresses. And you were supposed to send these slivers of scripture. And it was just a few pages, um, to an address and it would be forwarded. Cause I, I didn't write Cyrillic. I'm pretty sure I wasn't sending it to Russia, but I was sending it somewhere where it would eventually get to Russia. Uh, that was the story anyway. And I remember feeling so guilty because my little 10 or 11 year old self couldn't stay motivated to do very many of these <laughs> at a time. And so I'm envisioning, you know, this, whatever small stack of pieces of script pieces of the gospel of John or whatever it was, or on my little desk in my room. And I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Alex or whoever over in St. Petersburg, uh, doesn't have that chapter in his gospel of John because I haven't sent my, my part over there. So, um, he, or that kind of thing. And Arthur Blessed carrying his cross around the world and, and those kinds of things. And then, uh, brother Andrew, God smuggler, Yep. All those kinds of stories kind of dovetail, I think, into what you're talking about. Oh, and also even just, you know, later on recording parts of the gospel in mm-hmm. Russian on tapes that could then be passed around. So, and at transcription speed so that people in Russia could write their own scriptures oh, to yeah, pass yeah, around. Yeah. Oh, there's this huge effort. And so there's a lot of that grassroots movement. There's a lot of that, that bit. But the story that I, I tell is how that then goes from that grassroots effort to spread the gospel to an actual foreign policy lobby that is testifying Mm. before Congress and saying, hey, we don't want you to be negotiating with the Soviet Union. We don't want you extending trade, you know, favorable trade conditions to them until and unless they stop, you know, preventing their people from practicing Christianity or having religious freedom. And that starts, we start to see much more of that in the 1970s. It's not that there was never testimony before, there certainly was, but it's Mm -hmm. much more organized in the 1970s and into the 1980s. And the evangelical, uh, evangelical Christians who testify end up, you know, being able to push policy in a variety of ways. They they're able to put some constraints on what policymakers can do, sometimes in ways that you know, really go against uh, what we might think of. So, so the Reagan administration, for example, pretty on board with with pushing the Soviet Union hard, mm-hmm. but wanted to pursue a policy where they where they were a little bit more amenable to working with, say, Romania. Mm-hmm. Well, Christians in the United States were furious with Romania because they were, you know, ripping up Bibles and bulldozing churches and all of this stuff, and so they were very effective at putting a stop to Reagan administration effect, uh, efforts to differentiate their foreign policy. Mm. Um, so it's it's complex, and we then what we also see are evangelicals. I, I write in the book about the the Soviet context, the sort of work that evangelicals do to push for more religious freedom in the Soviet Union, but then I also look at other parts of the world. So. Evangelicals are really instrumental in supporting an evangelical dictator who comes to power in Guatemala in the 1980s because they see him as somebody who will promote their faith and promote the spread of evangelicalism in his country. And they link that to an idea that that religious freedom will lead to human rights 
Mm. protections, even though as they're supporting him, he is committing gross human rights violations against many of the people in his country. And so there's these interesting. So let me ask, uh, given what you just said about uh, Lausanne and the not the the not first or not Western, the non-Western countries that were represented there, their concerns about justice issues, did a place like uh, Guatemala set up a like a pitched battle between United States or Western evangelicals and the foreign policy they were driving versus the on the ground evangelicals saying, hey, wait a minute, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's so interesting because in some parts of Latin America that that did happen, we had there were um, would be a a larger corpus of kind of uh, what we might think of as social justice oriented evangelicals. And in Guatemala, there were certainly some who were pushing back. But a lot of the evangelicals who were in Guatemala were had had sort of come out of U.S. based churches, mm. so they were more on the conservative side of the picture, and so they were much more allied or closer to the U.S. perspective, and they were having pitched battles with social justice Catholics. Okay, uh, particularly in Guatemala, where the percentage of evangelicals had greatly expanded after 1976. There was this big earthquake that hit Guatemala and all sorts of religious groups went down to try to help, including a lot of U.S. evangelicals who set up churches and suddenly were they were able to really rapidly expand their footprint, much to the great dismay of the Catholics who were there. Yeah. And so when an evangelical leader came to power, it was their, they kind of saw it as their moment, right? Mm-hmm. That they were going to spread Protestantism. And he, he used lots of religious rhetoric in his uh, reporting and when he would come onto the radio waves, but it was, it was a complicated picture. But there are other parts um, in, in the Latin American and Central American world where we saw much more conflict between social justice uh, evangelicals and their more conservative counterparts, yeah. This is Marty Duran. You're listening to Uncommentary. I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Turek about her book, To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights in U.S. Foreign Relations. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. Uh, And there's not a lot more. But nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room in their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give two fifty a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. Or 
Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Well, part of your studies covered the issue of human rights um, globally and how U.S. evangelicals influenced our foreign policy in that regard. And so this is um, this is an area that's of interest to me because uh, kind of through the history that my life covers anyway. So the last 50 years plus a few um, there has been this sense that evangelicals tended to support the leader of an, in another country that was most like them politically, whether or not he was like them theologically or not. So that's how we wound up in many cases with evangelicals supporting dictators, even murderous dictators, but human rights did play an angle in this. So it, it, it almost feels like that at some points that the human rights part was kind of set aside in favor of a political aim. And at some point human rights became a means to a political uh, and uh, how did how, what did your research show in those regards? This was something that was particularly interesting to me because, of course, all of the story that I'm telling is unfolding in the context of the larger global human rights movement. And we mm. often think of that movement as being a left-leaning movement. We think of Amnesty International and all of these important, wonderful organizations that are really working worldwide to stop torture and other mm-hmm. abuses. That language of human rights especially in Congress, becomes very politically powerful. You don't want to be voting against human rights. That seems terrible. It's not very good politics. (laughs) But human rights itself is a pretty um, open-ended term. It can mean a lot of different things to different people, depending on your perspective. And so one of the uh, tactics, and I don't mean that in in the sense that it was not sort of truly or sincerely felt, but one of the political tactics that some of the evangelical lobbyists that I looked at used is they would discuss their political objectives using human rights language Mm. to help to bring other folks to the fold, to help to bring more support in Congress. And they weren't always successful, but by doing that, they did end up particularly during the Reagan years, shaping us human rights policy in a more conservative direction. Mm. So in the book, one of the big arguments that I make is that evangelicals in using this human rights language to talk about, say, promoting religious freedom abroad or supporting um, a particular anti-communist leader Mm -hmm. or anti-communist sentiments in places like Guatemala or South Africa, which is another sort of big story, by framing either uh, anti-communism as pursuing religious liberty and religious liberty as a core human right, the kind of fundamental human right they were using the, or sort of mobilizing the energy around human rights in the late seventies to their ends. And Mm. so they defined human rights very narrowly. It was not, you know, civil rights in the sense that let's say Amnesty International was thinking about, it was not more expansive economic rights. It was very narrowly focused on religion because they believed, and they said this in their testimony, uh, like the National Association of Evangelicals, leader testified in Congress that they believed that rights came from God, not from the state, the primary right. If you don't have a right to practice your religion, how could you possibly be free in any other context? So freedom of conscience, freedom of religion is the er right. Everything else comes from it. Mm. 
And so they use that very effectively to pursue their foreign policy agenda. And this is very appealing to the Reagan administration because when Reagan came into the presidency, he came in having run a campaign where in terms of thinking about foreign policy, he was very critical of his predecessor, Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter, not just because of the various challenges that Carter had in foreign policy, but also because he was associated with this more liberal view on human rights. Mm-hmm. Reagan said, this is, we, we, you know, we don't want to be pursuing this. This is, you know, it's giving aid to our adversaries and it's hurting our friends. And he had all of these objections to the human rights policies of Carter. But Reagan also faced a Congress that very much believed in that more expansive view of human rights. And so he needed allies to help him push the policies he wanted, but frame them using a more conservative perspective on human rights. And if he could say, of course, our administration is pursuing human rights. Look at us driving for religious liberty in the Soviet bloc. Look at us pushing for anti-communism as anti, you know, a sort of, Uh, religious liberty throughout the globe. Now, some members of Congress obviously don't buy this. They they sort of rail against this. And uh, they're very, uh, particularly in Guatemala, there are these human rights, um, this human rights rhetoric that is used Mm -hmm. to push support for this evangelical dictator who wants military aid. And Congress pushes back and says, no, we are absolutely not doing this. But it's important to note that evangelicals used human rights language to try to convince their more liberal colleagues in Congress that they should support this dictator. Mm. So that language becomes important. And so we see that being repeated in a lot of different contexts and other foreign policy conflicts. By 1998, there is a push among a range of different human rights activists, including evangelicals, to make the promotion of religious freedom a core part of U.S. foreign policy. And they pass an International Religious Freedom Act that actually makes that promotion. There's a whole part of the State Department that's dedicated to that. So some of the ideas that these folks were talking about in the late 70s and the early 80s their networks that they form to advocate for this particular view of human rights as being fundamentally focused on this core freedom that came out in that 1998 act. We saw it um, during the Trump administration in a lot of the statements from Mike Pompeo saying that they wanted to be promoting religious freedom, that that's the first freedom that the United States should be promoting along with um, property rights. Um, we have, but we have, I mean, an ambassador of religious Brownbeck, wasn't he like the ambassador of, uh, was it religious freedom? Was that his title? Something like that. Yeah. 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 So, so this ends up filtering up in this way where this is not something that just happened in the past and then disappeared or was particular to the Reagan administration. The language, the networks around this, the very idea created this conservative perspective on human rights that was very powerful and continues to shape foreign policy. Okay. Let me ask you this question. So it's easy. I think it would be easy. And and we have often justified things that happened during the cold war as well, this was the cold war. You Mm -hmm. have to understand we were fighting the communists. I mean, you go all the way back to, I guess, Eisenhower wanting to add or adding under God to the pledge of allegiance as, as a way to differentiate between the atheistic uh, philosophy of uh, Soviet union. So I guess uh, uh, my question is, or I hope I'm forming a question here at some point. If if we could say, okay, 
that was the cold war. We can kind of, you know, wink and nod and say if there was a context that kind of demanded or at least made space for um, us winking at a dictator, for instance, it, what's the context that would be argued post cold war that would say this still needs to be happening in much the same way. What, what is the new context that, that promotes or allows the same um, philosophy of evangelicalism and foreign policy that would have preceded it? This is such a great question because one of the things that I wanted to get across in the book was that I think it was the missionary work and the desire to evangelize first and anti-communism was a way to achieve that rather than anti-communism driving it. Because okay. very often when we read about the Cold War and evangelicals or the Cold War and religion, it is that story. It's, oh, the godless Soviet Union, we have to do whatever we can to resist them, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's not that that's not true. I think that that's true. I think in the case of the groups that I'm writing about, not everybody, but I think the vast majority of them or many of them are true believers that they need to evangelize the world. That's their responsibility, their uh, you know duty from God. They fully believe that. And so they're looking for whatever they need to do to achieve that, whatever barriers they need to break down to achieve that. And during the Cold War, one of the big barriers is communist countries that block their, their entry. Mm-hmm. There are also countries that they see as, quote, hostile to Christianity that are not communist countries. So they they see, for example, I think in the more contemporary period, uh, there's a perspective that uh, perhaps some, certain Muslim countries might be hostile to their mm-hmm. desire to evangelize um, and that there might be human rights abuses happening there or against Christians, right? So persecution of Christians in Mm -hmm. some contexts, right? And that dovetails with Islamophobia. That's a big story. Mm. But there's also still concern in China about persecution of people of different religions, not just Christians, Uyghurs and others, right? So persecution has not gone away. And if your big goal is to create a world that is safe for you to evangelize and for your co-religionists to to practice their faith and spread their faith to their children and to their neighbors if they want, um, then you're targeting the agents of the state or the agents of other um, groups that are making it hard for you to do that. And so it, okay. it goes beyond communism. And so when I talk about the Soviet Union in the book, I actually go beyond the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I talk about evangelicals going into the Commonwealth of Independent States uh, after the end, right, the, and, and into Russia mm-hmm. to continue to do evangelistic work and to continue to promote religious freedom well after the communist system there has collapsed. And so that's where I see this being more than just anti-communism. Anti-communism is a huge piece of the story, mm-hmm. but my, what I see as the kind of locus or the impetus for the, for the policy advocacy is one that's rooted in a particular interpretation of, of the religious mission. The book is to bring good news to all the nations. And I, I think I wailed on uh, David Kirkpatrick on the last episode about having a long subtitle. <laughs> I mean, you've like put him under the table here. Evangelical influence on human rights and U.S. foreign relations. That this was is- not the original title. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the, the press 
titles the book for you. I mean, yeah. my my main title to bring the good news to all nations. That's that was my main title. Yeah. But they changed my subtitle and made it much longer. <laughs> it's almost like one of those 1800s books, you know, that, that's got a two word title and a 42 word subtitle that runs all the way down the title page. <laughs> and it's split into two parts, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. Subtitle part one, subtitle part two. Oh, that's hilarious. Now you're on Twitter. Is it? Uh, I want to say it's at Lauren L. Turek. Is that right? Lauren F. Turek. F, F. is in Frank. Yeah. Oh, yeah. F is in Francis, maybe. F is in Francis, <laughs> yes. My grandmother's my grandmother's name. Yeah. And it's T-U-R-E-K. So if you're interested in the book, uh, I encourage you to order it. It's uh, from Cornell University Press, but I'm certain that Byron at Hearts and Minds can get it for you. It looks really interesting. Uh, I've skimmed it, and the subject matter is, uh, I think, really important, especially to somebody like me who is for getting the good news to all the nations. Um, and as I've already mentioned, uh, my, my youthful uh, <laughs> smuggling of the Bible into the Soviet bloc. Uh, but I'm also interested in how the good news can be actually for, in, in some instances, bad news. If, if we support policies that really don't help on the other end and we're saying, Hey, believe in Jesus while we're back home, uh, putting people in positions where they wonder why they should believe in Jesus. If this is what Jesus does to them uh, in the guise of uh, American foreign policy. This is where I think, I know you recently talked to David Kirkpatrick about mm -hmm. his book, and this is where I think there's an interesting synergy because there is evangelicals are very diverse, right? There are a mm -hmm. lot of folks who are pushing for social justice. And I think you can, you can do that. That, mm -hmm. that needs to be part of the story, but you also need to know about the history of what it can mean if you have to kind of, narrow a focus on, on what you're up to. See, this is why, and I'm a, I'm a unfortunately cynical person, uh, probably too cynical in a lot of ways, but the recent, I mentioned some books when we were at the outset here, um, the recent attention given to, uh, evangelical evangelicalism and its impact from historians, I think is like just immensely important because American Christians, I can't speak for the, the global body, but I've been an American Christian for a long time. And we don't ask a lot of questions about the impact of anything uh, other than how many people were saved and how many people were baptized. Uh, that's really the question that that's foremost on our mind. We don't ask the questions about end results often enough. So um, I, as I read over your book, um, I actually... I actually took it as being pretty friendly, not friendly in the softball sense of things, but not a, um, not a sledgehammer either saying you guys are wicked and stupid and anything like that. It, it really looks like this is what you did. And these are some of the things that happened as a result of that. And you might want to know. <laughs> that was, yeah, I mean, that's such a good way of putting it. I really so I, I wanted to write a book where, where somebody reading it who was there could recognize themselves and not say, well, you've totally misrepresented what mm -hmm. I was up to. I didn't want to write a polemic. Mm -hmm. And I've had some criticism for that because some people, some wanted people, to see that. Yeah. they want to see that. And that's yeah. not my style. I'm also, I am writing as a diplomatic historian. I am primarily interested. Diplomatic historians have in, I would say the past 10 or 15 years started to pay much more attention to religion than they did for a long time. Mm -hmm. But a lot of this book is saying to my diplomatic historian colleagues, Hey, 
religious groups can have a tremendous influence on foreign policy. Pay attention. Here are Mm -hmm. some things. It's not, it doesn't always look the same and it's not always, you know, they said this, the president did this Mm -hmm. foreign policy happened. Sometimes it's much more nuanced and sometimes they're not successful, but they're trying and it matters. So my goal was not to say like to cast judgment or to say Mm -hmm. X or Y, although I'm very clear, you know, not great to support an evangelical dictator in Guatemala, probably, you know, definitely don't want to be calling for gradual ends to apartheid in South Africa, not on the right side. there. really, really should have been more forceful, but (laughs) religious freedom as a concept. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's important to promote. So it's, it's a, it's a, each case study gives a different example where they're either very effective in their goal, but it's not meant to be, as you said, a sledgehammer. It's not a polemic. It is very much uh, the goal was, this is an interesting thing that happened that a lot mm-hmm. of people haven't written about and don't know much about. And I did all this cool research all over the world. And let me tell you about <laughs> what I learned. That's fantastic. Well, Lauren, thanks for hanging out today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun, Marty. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com. Uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm-hmm.